Good morning, Westside. How's Westside this morning? That didn't sound very great. Uh, Aaron, Allie, thank you for leading us in the worship. And Jason, thank you for that uh, baptism illustration. I was sitting over there thinking, I never realized before there could be a relationship between baptism and being a Chicago Cub fan. I mean, both are kind of miraculous. Um, you know, because any team can have a bad century, and you just thank you. So that was very helpful. Wow. What a privilege to be here with you folks this morning. This is, this is a real honor. My wife Sue and I have uh, not been here before. We're part of the old stuffy crowd over at Village 7 Press. And, uh, but what a treat to be with you guys this morning. And even though we've never attended and been here with you, Sue and I owe you all a huge, huge thank you. Last June 11th, um, when the first nine one, reverse 911 calls were, uh, were issued for the Black Forest Fire, um, Sue was driving back from Kansas with the grandkids, and she was in about Colby, Kansas, when she got the 911 call. And I was halfway from Glenary back to our home in the Black Forest when I got the 911 call saying that we need to evacuate our house now because the fire was bearing down upon it. So uh, I rushed the rest of the way home at various multiples of the speed limit. And I, I, I saw the fire coming and realized I had about 10 minutes to get out. So I threw the photo albums and the Bibles and the journals and stuff in the car and then fled. And then, then the, the time frame, the timetable gets a little blurry, but it wasn't long before Sue gets a text from Jason saying they're going on vacation in the mountains for two weeks and their house is available. And so for the next 10 days, we lived in the Tippett's house. And the kids, the grandkids, thought they'd moved into Toys R Us. I mean, they, <laughs> they, they had an f- absolutely fabulous time. And, uh, and then it happened. West Side Church, who had, didn't know these strangers who were living in the, your pastor's house, in the Tippett's house, absolutely overwhelms us with love. Breakfast arrives. Lunch arrives. I think Melissa brought dinner over. A stroller arrives. I mean, we had to call a stop to it. I couldn't eat that much. Especially after I discovered the treasure trove of ice cream <laughs> in, the, in the Tippett's freezer. I mean, you need to go look sometime. It's incredible. So we owe you a huge thank you. Um, but why do I share all this? It's because Sue and I had the unique privilege of experiencing your reputation. We experience the reputation of Westside Church about how you love people unconditionally, people you don't even know. And so I thought that would be a fun topic for this morning to build on your strengths and talk about the unconditional love of God and his unconditional relationship with people, with us. 
Before we do that, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer together. Father, and we do mean that, Father, thank you. Thank you for your word to us, that the word we're going to look at this morning together is not something you would say to us if you were here, but it's what you are saying to us because you are here. Father, thank you that your word is not like a fossil or a relic displayed under glass in a museum. But thank you that your living and abiding word to us today, this morning. So, Father, give us ears to hear and a heart that is responsive to what you have for us. And we pray we wouldn't just grow in knowledge and information of your word. But, Father, you tell us that it's our trust of you that pleases you. And so, Father, I pray that each of us would leave here this morning trusting what you say to us is true. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you know that uh, when I turned 50, just a few years after the, the end of the Civil War, um, I, I had an opportunity to have a year of sick leave from the Navigators. Um, had a, uh, a year to recover from a very severe burnout and a very deep, dark, dark, dark year of depression. And it was brought on by two things. First, I, w I was an addicted people pleaser. And uh, as you grow in navigator leadership and the regional director, and then I directed the collegiate work for a while, and then deputy U.S. director, and then chief of staff, it's really chief of stuff, um, your perception of the number of people that you have to please just grows exponentially. And it exhausts you. But here's the really bad news for people pleasers. In the first letter of John to the churches that he pastored, he writes about how what is true in our horizontal relationships is always also true in our vertical relationship with God. And the, the opposite's also true. What's true in our vertical relationship with God is always reflected in our horizontal relationships with each other which means me is an addicted people pleaser, John says that means you're also an addicted God pleaser. Now both of those are deadly. They will completely exhaust you. And I would, I would love to take my X-Acto knife and go to 1 John and cut some of those passages out. I just hate them. <laughs> Matter of fact, I have a whole list of New Testament verses I don't like. Um, I think the second thing that brought on the depression and, and the burnout was those genes run in my family and the, the, the utter exhaustion of every day trying to please people and please God. The exhaustion of that allowed those, that depression just to come to the surface. And it was, it was very dark. Now, for those of you who have smartphones, how many have smartphones? Okay, a lot of smart people here. Um, you know how you get all these messages all the time that your apps need updating? Like every day, 10 times a day you need to update your apps? Well, since my burnout and, 
and the depression, I've been on a journey of allowing the gospel to update, update this, this and transform this, this compulsion to please people, to please God, to update what it means to live by the gospel and to update what it means for me to live in the freedom of the gospel. And I'd like to take a look with you this morning at two passages of scripture that God has used very, very deeply in my life. The first is in John 15. We'll look at verses 9 to 11 about the unconditional love that God has for us. And then we're going to go over and look at Romans 5.1 and look at the unconditional relationship that God has for us. But before we go there, we need a little gospel context. Okay, so here's a little gospel background. Before we trusted Christ and, and became a Christian, our inability to live a holy and sinless life created a couple of problems for us. Created lots of problems, but two major ones. The first major problem was it created a relational problem with God. God and his holiness cannot relate and fellowship with sin, and so there's alienation between me and God. And then secondly, my inability to live a sinless and holy life created another problem, and that is in God's justice, sin has to be punished. So I had two problems. I had a relational alienation with God, and I had a punishment problem. I had two dilemmas that I could do absolutely nothing about. But then there's the good news in Romans 8.1, and I love it in the Message Bible. It says, with the arrival of Jesus, this fateful dilemma is resolved. And you think, how so? Well, it's by two. There's lots of miracles of the gospel, but we want to focus in on two this morning. The first miracle of the gospel is this that resolves these problems. Is when I decide to trust Christ or become a Christian, become a follower of Jesus, or however you want to articulate that, what I'm doing is I am deciding to put my trust in the obedient life of Christ and in the punishment of Christ instead of my futile attempts at obeying and, and trying to be holy and sinless. I'm putting my trust in the obedience of Christ and in the punishment of Christ is the basis of my relationship with God. Never again am I going to trust in my performance or in my behavior. Now that's good news. I think most of us as believers get that. We've known it for years, some of us. I, was, I knew it for years, and it made me an incredibly thankful. But there was one part of the gospel I didn't get very clearly, and it's this. Just as I decide to trust in the obedience of Christ and the death of Christ is the basis of my relationship with God, you know what? God depends on the obedience of Christ and the death of Christ as the basis of his relationship with me. Never again does he look to my behavior in my performance, in my effort, in my faithfulness is the basis of his relationship with me. 
You see, if he looked to those things as the basis of his relationship, then that relationship is conditional, and it's still based on me. That bottom one was a game, that last one was a game changer for me. It changed everything. Because I could get off of this exhausting treadmill that never stopped of trying to please God by my performance in my behavior. I have an unconditional relationship with God. First, let's look, let's look together at God's unconditional love for us. So grab your Bibles or your tablets or your smartphones or whatever, and let's go over to John 15. And we're going to look at verses 9 to 11 together. John 15, 9 to 11. This has been an incredibly foundational passage for me. I mean, if you take my Bible and just kind of hold it, it almost automatically opens to John 15. I've spent so much time there. And so what we're doing this morning is I'm just walking you through some of my footsteps in learning to update the gospel in terms of how I live. So verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me. Now we need to do a little Greek grammar here for a minute. I just want you to know I knew a little Greek once. But he moved. Um, but English verbs and Greek verbs are very different. Uh, it's horrible to try to translate from a Greek verb into an English verb because we use them so differently. In English, we use verbs how? What do we use verbs to describe? The time of action, past, present, future. Now, in, in Greek, they they use a verb to not to describe so much the time of the action, but the type of action. And so there's not a one-to-one correlation between the two languages, so it gets very hard. And in this passage, it uses one of the hardest Greek tenses called the aorist tense. And it can mean all kinds of things in different places, and so context is, is very, very important. But when Jesus says, it's the Father has loved me, it's in the aorist tense, and what it means here, it's action that is 100% complete in the past. It's 100% complete action. And what Jesus is saying is there's nothing that Jesus could do to make his Father love him more than his Father already loved him. His love's complete. And what he's also saying is there's nothing that Jesus was saying, there is nothing he could do to make the Father love him less. The Father's love for him was 100% complete and locked down. It's unchangeable. Okay? So Jesus couldn't subtract from his Father's love by, if he could, by disobeying. As the Father has loved me, and then Jesus says this, so have I loved you. And he uses exactly the same Greek verb tense, the aorist. And what he is saying is my love for you is 100% complete and locked down. 
God doesn't love you more when you obey. Okay? God doesn't love you less when you disobey. Now, that's not permission to go disobey, okay? Especially kids, hear that. <laughs> Let me put it another way that kind of a little more irritating, sounds a little more heretical. God does not love you more when you resist temptation. He does not love you less when you give in. See, if God loved you less when you give in, then his love for you is still conditioned on your behavior and not on the work of Christ on the cross and by his obedient life. There is absolutely nothing that you can do to make God love you more than he already loves you in Christ Jesus. And there's nothing you can do this morning to make him love you less. Over in John 17, verse 23, is this absolutely incredible verse. Jesus is praying to the Father, and in, in the context of that prayer, he is talking about how God the Father loves the disciples just as much as he loved Jesus. Think of that, my friends. This morning, God the Father loves you as much as he loved his only son. Wow. It's like he's invited you to be a part of this trinity with a few million other people. But there you are with the same love he has for his son. That's incredible. So, if God loves you the same when you obey or you disobey, and it's unchangeable, why obey? Well, the verse goes on, and Jesus says, abide in my love. And I remember the first time I read that, I thought, that's a weird phrase. He has just said his love for me is 100% complete, but now he says, abide in it. In other words, even though it's complete, I must be able to move in and out of my experience of it somehow. And then he goes on, and he says, in verse 10, he says, If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. And I thought, aha, there's the purpose of obedience. You see, you and I never obey. We should never obey thinking that God will love us more. We do not obey so that God will love us. We obey to experience the love he already has for us. Catch that? We don't obey so that God will love us. We obey so we can experience the love he already has for us. So obedience is never about earning. It's always about experiencing. Obedience doesn't earn God's love. 
It just enables us to experience it. Okay? And then he goes on in verse 11. He says, these things I've spoken to you. And what, what has he just spoken? Well, he's talked about this unconditional love. Why has he spoken this? He says that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, the result of this unconditional love that we don't have to perform for, behave for, to buck up for, Jesus is saying, I've told you this truth of the gospel, this reality, so that your joy can be full. See, if joy depended upon your effort, you would never experience joy. Because you know what will happen? At the end of the day, you're going to take a little inventory of the day. And you're going to go, well, Bill, how'd you do today? Did you do well enough so that God is really, 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 really pleased with you today? And he loves you just bunches. What's your answer going to be? No. Uh, was impatient, went over the speed limit, tried to ram the old lady with my car. A um, <laughs> few things. Okay, God, I'm going to try harder tomorrow. And so I try harder tomorrow. I help Sue make the bed. I put my breakfast dishes in the dishwasher. I don't kick the dog on the way out the door. I don't speed. At night, I take inventory. God, how well did I do today pleasing you? <sighs> well, I didn't kick the dog, but I did try to run over the neighbor's cat. Um, and so you try harder, and you try harder. See, in the gospel, the gospel principle is this. You will never experience joy by effort. by your performance. Joy is a gift from God as a result of the good news of the gospel. I have said these things to you about the unconditional love of God. So at the end of the day, no matter how bad your day was, you can be filled with joy. Because you know God is crazy about you. He's in love with you. Okay. Well, let's look for a minute at this, this, this last part of this illustration I used that, that just as I relate to the Father through the life and death of Christ, so God relates to me on the basis of the obedience in the death of Christ. That's the basis of his relationship with me, not my performance. And that was a real game changer. See, most Christians believe this, and I got this from my friend John Lynch, pastor of Open Door Fellowship down in, in Phoenix, but it's a great illustration. He says most Christians believe this, that when they sin, all of a sudden, God's way over there in the corner, and I'm over here in this corner, and all my sin is between us. And I go, oh, nuts. And I begin to tell God some things. I say, God, just wait. Give me a little time. I'll get all this sin out from between us, and we'll be friends again. We'll be close. We'll be intimate again. 
Just give me a little time. I really mean it this time. And so I go to work trying to get this heap of sin out from between us. And I'm working at it, and I'm working at it, and I'm not kicking the dog, and I, I've, I've, I'm not running over the cat, and all this stuff. And I'm behaving myself, you know. And what I don't realize is 40 more dump truck loads of sin have come in. And I'm working at it, and I'm working at it because I want to be close to God again. Well, my friends, any theology that tells you that when you sin, it becomes between you and God is bad theology. Okay? Isaiah 59.2, a lot of people go back to Isaiah 59.2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. That is true for the unbeliever. It is not true for you as a follower of Jesus. Nothing, not even your sin, relationally comes between you and the Father. If it does, then that relationship is still conditional. And God is relating to you on the basis of your behavior and not on the life of Christ. So Isaiah 59.2 is not true. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. It's not true of us as believers. On the contrary, what is true is Romans 5.1. Paul has just laid out, beautifully laid out the argument for justification by faith. And as he starts Romans 5.1, he, he begins to lay out the fruit, the results, the fruit in our life of being justified by faith. And the very first thing that comes to mind is peace with God. He says, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Okay. Now, peace here is not a feeling. Peace in this context is a relational word. It's a relationship word. It means to bind back together that which is broke, has been broken, that which has been separated. Okay? So it's not a change of feeling, it's a change of relationship. Sue has all these fancy teacups and saucers, you know, the, with roses and flowers and stuff, and the, the, the handles are too small to get your finger through, so you've got to just kind of squeeze it, and then I guess you're supposed to put your pinky in the air as you drink your tea. Mike, you know, that's English stuff. You should know that. Um, I don't know what's the matter with mugs that you can actually get three fingers in. But every once in a while, one of these saucers will fall, you know, and crack. And now it's in two pieces. And so down to the basement we go to get the super glue. And we're binding what has been broken back together to be one. That's what the word peace means here. To bind back together that which has been broken. John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, says the word peace here means to restore a relationship, to renew a friendship. That's what the gospel has done for us. It's restored the relationship. It's renewed a friendship. And um, I can share this illustration because Jason shares a silly illustration. Um, thank you. Give me permission. Um, it's like 
We're standing there facing God. And we're standing there looking at him. We're, we're, we don't, because he's our father, we, we, we don't have to stand on, on eggshells. We don't have to be wondering what he's thinking of us. And as we're standing there, kind of being super glued back to the father relationally, out of the corner of our eye, we see somebody going around us with a long rope. And they keep going around us and around us and around us and pulling us tighter to the father. And then they put a knot in the rope. You know who that is that's gone around us and tied us to the Father? That's Jesus. Over in Colossians 1.20, it says, Jesus made peace by the blood of the cross. See, we have a, new, a renewed relationship and friendship with the Father, not because of our obedience, not because of our faithfulness, not because of how hard we've been trying, but because of Jesus, not our, not our effort. And so we stand there guiltless, bold, confident, ecstatic, giddy, facing the Father. It says we have peace with God. That word with in the Greek can have the meaning of facing. And so we're there facing him. And I always wonder, what are our eyes doing? You know, kind of looking at your feet and darting around. But when you look in his face, what do you see? You know what you see? You see him beaming at you because he's crazy about you. See, God is your friend. He's not your enemy. And you know what else? Not only is God your friend, you are the Father's friend. Now, I look through the New Testament. There's no place in the New Testament that I have found God the Father calling us friends. But who does call us friends? Jesus does. Now, what does Jesus do? Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. And what does Jesus say? He only says what he hears the Father saying. So why does Jesus call us friends? Because that's, what he, that's how he sees the Father treating us. And that's how he hears the Father talking about us. We have been bound back together with our friend. Peace with God. God is not your enemy. He's your friend. And this morning, as believers, he's beaming at you. And he's got you tight. You're in his grasp. He's in, you are in his grip. See, and if you sin, your sin does not loosen that grip that he has on you. If your sin loosened that grip, then his relationship to you is dependent upon your behavior. But that grip he has on you is dependent upon the behavior of Jesus.
That's why it's so firm. And that's why he won't let go. Okay. Now, I get a lot of pushback on this when we share about this unconditional relationship. For some reason, folks don't like the idea of such a one-sided relationship. And I've thought about it, and I've tried to think why, and I think Paul anticipated it over in Romans 3. He says, in Romans 3.21, he says the most audacious thing to the Jews. He says, but now there is a righteousness that comes from God, or a right relationship with God that sets the rest of life right. There is a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ apart from the law, apart from behavior. There is a right relationship with God that is no longer dependent upon your behavior. Can you imagine what the Jews were thinking when they heard Jesus say that? Then he goes down, verse 27. He says, so what becomes of our boasting? He says, it's gone. It's gone. Why do we push back against such an unconditional relationship? Because it doesn't allow us to boast. See, we like our ego. We love to take credit. We love to take credit for how close we are to God. Oh, I've been so faithful in my quiet time. I've been doing really well in prayer time. I've been trying to love my neighbor. We love to take credit for our closeness to God. The gospel eliminates that. It's gone. And the other thing we like about taking credit, it helps me measure myself against you. I'm doing better than you are. I'm more faithful than you are. And so I am closer to God. I have one word for that type of thinking. Baloney. Our intimacy with the Father is not dependent upon our performance and our behavior. It's dependent upon Jesus' performance and on his behavior. Okay? So... In conclusion, let me just say this. My friends, God loves you unconditionally every day, no matter how bad your day. On your worst day, even if you are successful running over the cat, God loves you unconditionally. There is nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. And he has you tight in his grasp relationally. There is nothing, Romans 8 says, there is nothing in all of creation that's going to come between that relationship that you have with your father. Nothing. Not even your sin. And so, my friends, as followers of Jesus, as believers in Christ, 
the battle for God's affection and the battle for a relationship with the Father has been won. The battle's over. But you didn't win it. Jesus won it for you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that we can call you Father. You've adopted us as your sons and your daughters, and in our adoption you change from being our judge to being our Father. Thank you that you aren't an enemy, but you're our friend. And Father, I pray, you have said, I I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Father, knowing these things won't cause our joy to be full. But Father, when we trust these things that you tell us, our joy will be full. And so I pray for each one here this morning that as we leave, by the power of your spirit, you would create in us and give us the ability to trust that what you have told us about your love and your relationship with us is true. Father, help us to trust it and live like it. In Jesus' name. Well, as we're sent out, we're sent out because God loves us deeply. Um, And two things as you go, just to remind you of, then I'll read some uh, passages of scripture um, to us as God's people. If you'd like to be more connected at Westside, we have an iPad in the corner that you can type in your email and get more information of what's going on. Also, if you'd like to be around again next week and meet some more people, we have a meal. Our kids call it affectionately Eat Church. Uh, We do eat after church, though, not in the middle of church. Um, So please join us for that. But please, as God's beloved children, uh, receive God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.